I want to invite you to uh, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> I hope that, uh, you know, as Thanksgiving approaches, that you find in your heart really an attitude of thankfulness. Was, uh, you know, I just keep thinking about what a great thing it is that God has provided for us such a wonderful salvation. And uh, my dad loved the Lord and looked forward actually to this day, and uh, it makes it so easy when you know that uh, people you love are going home to be with him. And so, Second uh, Peter chapter 3. Last week I mentioned to you that um, God gives warnings before he acts. God warns us about what's coming in the future before he acts. A, a big part of the prophetic scriptures uh, serve as warnings that come from God about what's going to happen in the future. You know, when the Bible was written, about two-thirds of it, about a third of it was actually prophetic. Talked about events that are in the future. And many of those events have come to pass. And uh, many are yet in the future. And so one of the purposes of God is so that we can be prepared. And again, if you think back to uh, Noah's day, the Bible tells us that for 120 years, uh, God was saying to people, it's going to rain through Noah. It's going to rain. It's going to rain hard. 120 years. But... People didn't believe God's word, and so um, just Noah and his family survived. And so our passage this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3, I want to suggest to you, is a a warning passage. It's a passage about what's going to happen to everything that's familiar to us in this life. Uh, It's a warning passage. It's about what's going to happen when Christ comes back, what's going to happen to the earth, and and, uh, what's going to happen at the consummation of history, what that'll be like. You may have noticed, you know, in recent years, there's quite a few movies that come out that have apocalyptic themes about how the world might end. And there's different kinds of ideas and, and scenarios. And you might wonder, you know, well, where, where is that coming from? Why, why are people making movies like this? And why are they so popular? And, and so on and so forth. Well, there, there are basically four popular views about history. If you ask yourself, how do I think about history or how do I understand history? There's probably four popular views. One view of history is that uh, history is committed to inevitable progress. That one view of history just says things are getting better, and things are always getting better. Uh, It's kind of based on the whole theory of evolution, that things are evolving and things keep getting better. And if you think about it, it means that, you know, we are better than the people who came before us, and uh, poor us, we're not as good as the people who are going to come after us, because they're going to be better yet, you know. And, and, and life is just kind of evolving like that, and things are getting better. And so optimism and positive thinking count on this idea that history is a, a thing of inevitable progress. Uh, a second really common uh, understanding of history is that history is cyclical. Uh, the Greek philosophers contributed a lot to this whole idea that, that kind of what goes around comes around. And that history is cyclical. It just keeps going around. You might seem to be moving forward, but then you sort of get to a plateau, and then you start going backwards. And so we have like the rise of civilizations, and then we have the fall of civilizations. And it's just all cyclical. It just keeps going round and round and round. We're not going anyplace. We're not making any progress. It just kind of keeps going round and round. We flourish for a little while. We decline for a while. Egypt is a good example of a, a culture, a society that's kind of flourished for a while and it goes down for a while and it flourishes again. And so history is going around in circles. A third 
uh, idea about history, a uh, third belief, I might say, about history is sort of the scientific idea uh, that the world is actually winding down, that there actually will be an end to everything because out there in the future someplace, there's a point at which the world will no longer be able to sustain us. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics teaches us that you know, things are gradually winding down and the sun is gradually burning out and there will be an end point at some time uh, when the whole universe can no longer support us. I, I call it the scientific view. And then there's still others, and it's a lot of people who, um, uh, who are historians tell us that uh, history is basically meaningless. Uh, they kind of study the events of the past, and uh, they come to the conclusion that history is basically a random sequence of events. You know, if you line up all the things in the past, and you do research, and you try to figure out well, what's the theme? What's the, what's the rhyme and reason for history? What's the purpose of history? How do we figure out, you know, what this whole thing is all about and so forth? Uh, if you have a purely uh, humanistic or materialistic uh, view of life, you come to the conclusion that history is just a meaningless series of events that just keep happening. And then, of course, finally, on top of these four, I would call them kind of popular views, there's the idea of the biblical understanding of history, uh, which is very different, of course, which uh, would suggest that um, history, according to the Bible, is the creation of and order the control of God, that God created history, that God made time and that he made people and that he has a plan and that things are working out and that God is ultimately sovereign or in control. It's not purposeless. It's not meaningless. It's not unintelligent, random series of events. The biblical view is that there's way more to history than meets the eye that behind the story of history, there's a God who is at work. And uh, there is meaning to the whole uh, endeavor of history. There is a, a God behind the scenes, and he started history, he invented people, he invented time, and uh, from time to time, God intervenes in the process of history to accomplish his purposes. And that's really what our passage is about. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, we read this. The day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. There is an end point to history. There is a consummation that God tells us is coming. This is how it will all end. Um, if you want to understand history from God's perspective... You have to understand sin. Sin is rebellion against God. Genesis chapter 3. If we didn't have Genesis chapter 3, we wouldn't understand what sin is. Sin is basically rebelling against allowing God to be God. And, uh, and it has all different flavors, a zillion different varieties and so forth. But basically, um, sin is uh, rebellion against God being God. And it's here in Genesis chapter 3, in, in the unfolding of human history, it's here that all the problems in life get introduced. It's here that diseases come into human history. It's here that death enters human history from God's point of view. It's, it's a consequence of rebelling against God. It's here that we read that God actually um, cursed the ground. And uh, it, it's at the beginning, because of sin, that everything that frustrates us about life, that's where it comes from. And that's our understanding. That's the biblical understanding of why all the problems in history. 
In uh, Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says, you know, not only are uh, the people affected, but the whole creation. Let me read uh, Romans 8 verse 19. Uh, The whole creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The whole creation is waiting for the people that God is calling out of the world to be his children. The whole creation is waiting for that to get done. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. All the heave-hos, the typhoons that happened, the, 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 the terrible storms. If you read um, you know, the book of Job and you ask yourself, who's really behind these storms? It's very interesting. People say, well, why does God allow this? Well, Satan is the one who brings the storms to kill Job's kids. Do you remember? And, and God gives Satan certain parameters in which he can act, and, and all according to God's bigger sovereign plan. And the force behind these terrible things is coming from that direction. The creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, the scientific view, bondage to decay, and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. The whole creation is waiting for this climax to happen to history so that it can be what God originally intended it to be before sin made a mess of everything we understand uh, to be a part of human history. Uh, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. What a great passage of scripture. The whole heave-ho of history, the whole up and down, the whole you know, uh, positive and negative, someday is going to be released into what God intended it to be before sin, before rebelling against God came into the whole mix. And uh, Peter says that part of the process of how that's going to happen uh, is here. And so, if you understand sin, and you understand how God kind of cursed the ground, cursed the creation, and you understand why these things, the the world and history is um, not now what it once was intended to be, and what it once will be again. As the choir sang for us, there's a new Jerusalem that's coming, that's in fact, the Bible tells us, in the process of being created. So way back there in Genesis chapter 3, in the the 15th verse, God made a promise. He said there's going to come somebody who's going to destroy Satan's work. And as history unfolds, Jesus comes, and he's that person that was promised way back there in Genesis 3.15 because God has a plan. There's a plan for history. And if you were to wrap that plan up in one word, it would be salvation. From Genesis chapter 3 to the end of Revelation, the story of God, the story of history, is the story of God buying back people that he loves who were lost to sin, who were lost to... um, this reality that uh, strikes the world at this point in time. And so when God's purpose is accomplished, there'll be this consummation. And this is what Peter's warning us about, that there is a plan to history. There's a rhyme and reason for what's going on. Things will not continue as they always have been. And, And that's really what's gotten Peter ticked off here in our passage, right? Because these critics who are saying, oh, the world just is going to continue on and on and on, you know, as it's always been. 
And Peter says, no, it's not. There's an end coming, and God has given us this warning. And so God today is calling out a people to himself, a a salvation. And when that's concluded, Christ will return, and the day of the Lord will come against everybody who rejects God's salvation. And the earth will ultimately be destroyed. Everything that belongs to sinful humanity will be destroyed with it. Uh, You know, the ancient world was destroyed by a flood, right, in Noah's day. And I personally believe that the fossil record that people use for other purposes is the record of the flood that happened. And that's why we find in the fossil uh, record all the death and all the destruction and and so forth that happened during the flood. Um, But there's... The current world is being reserved for fire and uh, will be destroyed by fire. And uh, when we think about that, 2 Peter 3.10 tells us, you know, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Now, the day of the Lord is a technical phrase for uh, this day of judgment. It's all through the Old Testament as well as the New Testament, the day of the Lord. When you see that phrase, you'll know that this is what's being talked about. And it's very interesting to me, um, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Now, you've probably heard that along the way. In um, Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus um, said, actually, in verse uh, 43 and 44, understand this, Jesus is talking, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you don't expect him. Okay? And then um, the Apostle Paul writes the same thing. In uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5, um, here's what Paul says. He says, now, brothers, about the times and the dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, a lot of people use that phrase, the thief in the night, to talk about Imminency, which is a doctrine that says that Jesus could come at any time. He could come this afternoon, right? Imminency. He's going to come like a thief in the night. People won't be expecting it, and wham, there he'll be. Now, I used to think that, and then one day I was reading this passage in Thessalonians, and it changed everything for me. The next verse, verse 4, it says, you know, verse 3 says, uh, while people are thinking peace and safety, the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 4 says this, but, You, brothers, are not in the dark so that this day should surprise you like a thief. Ah, what does that mean? For the world, it will be like a thief in the night, totally unexpected. But for people who are people of the book and who believe in the prophetic scriptures, this isn't a surprise for you. You, You're going to know when this is going to happen. And uh, this changed my whole attitude towards trying to understand prophecy You are not in the dark so that this day should surprise you like a thief. There are signs that the Bible reveals that are going to happen. And when you see these signs happening, you'll know that we're getting closer and and things like that. So so look what he says. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We don't belong to the night or the darkness. So then, let us not be like other people who are asleep, but let us be alert and let's be self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. He's talking about the rapture of the church before the judgment of God comes down. 
Why? Because God did not appoint his children to suffer his wrath. Why? Because that's what happened to Jesus on the cross in our place. And uh, when you begin to uh, kind of, when I took this and then began to reread, you know, prophetic scriptures, uh, I realized, you know, for the world, it's going to come like a thief in the night. But for a believer, you will have a sense that we're getting uh, closer and closer. For Christians, it should be very different. We're not in the dark. We have God's word. We have his prophetic word on what the future is going to be. Uh, the idea of that thief in the night supporting this idea that Jesus could come at any time, imminence, I think is a, a wrong interpretation. Uh, there are signs to look for. In, in, for example, let me just, in 2 Thessalonians, if you're there, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I think is uh, an illustration. Of verse 1 says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so just think about this. So this is specifically about his return and our being gathered together to him. We ask you, brothers, don't become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy or report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anybody deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. And he will oppose and exalt himself over everything that's called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. The Lord will not return today, I can guarantee it. Because the man of lawlessness that the Bible talks about has not been revealed yet. Uh, there are other passages of scripture, it's not our purpose to go there today, but you know, the Bible tells us there's a figure, a worldwide figure that's going to be an antichrist. Uh, somebody who's going to come and, and, and the world is going to look to that person to be their savior. And he's going to kind of create peace, going to make a peace treaty with Israel and sort of settle the Middle East thing. And it's going to last for three and a half years. Very specific. Old and New Testament talk about this. Jesus talked about it. And at exactly the three and a half year point, that person's going to manifest himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And he's going to uh, demand the worship of the world. And you can read about this. I mean, it's, it sounds fanciful if you don't know the scriptures, but the truth is that's what's going to happen. And Jesus will not come until, I mean, it's plain as day there. So Jesus can't come today because who is that man? We don't know. And he hasn't yet been revealed. And, and so on and so forth. And when you begin to put this together, you begin to see that God has revealed an awful lot about what to expect and what to look for and how it's all going to unfold. Um, if you skip down to uh, verse 8, uh, and this lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow by the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. How are we going to get rid of the Antichrist? Christ is going to come, and with the breath of his mouth, he's going to destroy you know, um, that person by the splendor of his coming. Uh, the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. That worldwide leader who will be recognized by the world is going to you know, offer peace and people are going to say, oh, finally, peace and safety, the whole Middle East thing, calm down, uh, is going to turn. It's an, it's a, it's, it's, it, that person's an instrument of Satan. Uh, and look, and, and that person will display all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders. That person's going to wow the world because they're going to have a, 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 a satanic power to work miracles. And people are going to think, wow, it must be God. You see? And, and here's God telling us, again, more, telling us, you know, and, and look what he says, counterfeit, miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. People are going to call evil good. 
And uh, people are going to be deceived. And he says, um, and this, this is a frightening verse of scripture, it seems to me. Uh, the last part of verse 10, it says, people are going to perish because they refuse to love the truth. They refuse to love the truth, which God has revealed to us. They refuse to love the truth. And uh, for this reason, verse 11, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. It's part of the judgment that's coming. It's part of this return of Christ. But these, these are part of the things that God has revealed to us. The day of the Lord will come, and it will be a horrible day. Uh, Jesus uh, said it like this in uh, Mark's gospel. Uh, all these tabs so they can not waste time looking. But uh, in Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, in those days, following that distress of the Antichrist and so forth, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Here's the sign. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, there'll be lots of people claiming to be me. Don't follow after them. When I come, you'll know it. The sun won't shine, the stars will fall, the moon will turn you know, uh, red and uh, black as sackcloth. Uh, Revelation chapter 6 says the exact same thing. Um, you remember in Revelation chapter 6, you know, 5 and 6, uh, God is sitting on the throne, he's got a scroll in his right hand, and the scroll's got seven seals on it, and it can't be opened, and inside of it is what's going to happen uh, to the world in the future and so forth. And, and John, who's writing this, you know, says he's weeping because nobody was found who's worthy to open the seals. And an angel comes and says, you know, Jesus, the lamb who was slain and paid for the world, can open the seals. And the Lord shows up, and he opens the seals. And when he gets to the sixth seal, before that scroll is unopened, which is then the enactment of this, uh, all that we're talking about here, he says, uh, I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind, and the sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave, every free man hid in caves and among the rocks, and they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? I could go through the Old Testament and show you the same thing, that right before the Lord comes, there's these cosmic disturbances. So we'll know. And uh, don't let anybody fool you, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, because they were confused about that, and, and so on and so forth. And so, but the good news is that the believers are going to be raptured out of here before God's wrath ever comes, because Jesus took that for us. It's a great promise. It's a great thing, our salvation. It's a huge gift from God. And so the consummation uh, will be of God. It won't be of man. This is uh, God who is acting. Let me just read one more passage from Isaiah in the Old Testament. Um, uh, Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, Isaiah says. Uh, it will come like destruction from the Almighty. Uh, because of this, all hands will go limp. Every man's heart will melt. 
Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other, their faces aflame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of the heavens and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I'll put an end to the arrogant and the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make men scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophar. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Old and New Testament talk about this coming day of the Lord as a horrible event. And Peter tells us it will happen by fire. Lots of people think it's a a nuclear um, kind of uh, explosion. And uh, you know the whole universe is made up of atoms and there's an energy, a force that holds all the atoms together. And uh, when you think about this, um, 2 Peter 3, 7 uh, said the same thing. By the same word, by God's word, the word that made creation, the word that brought salvation, by the same word, Uh, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, uh, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men, uh, being kept um, reserved for fire. And so, I don't know, you know, uh, I always think of uh, Colossians. In in Colossians chapter 1, Colossians is a a Christocentric book. talks about Jesus and who he really is. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by Jesus, okay, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and here's the line, and in him all things hold together. In Christ, who created everything, all things hold together. He just has to say the word, and the whole thing comes unglued. And for those of us living at this point in time, we understand that, that uh, atomic energy, you know, and you know, even just if you think about water, hydrogen and oxygen, they're both highly flammable substances. And uh, imagine the whole world, that God's word, just uh, letting loose with all of that. And so I don't know. I, I don't know how he's going to do it, you know. But here's the thing to think about, it seems to me. However God does it, just think about the fact that all of our works, all of our cities, uh, the new World Trade Center, tallest building, right? Uh, all of our inventions, uh, all of our achievements, up in smoke like that. I mean, just think about that. Ask yourself what you're giving your life to. How much of your life is given to whatever you're giving it to? And you come up with a question, it seems to me, um, knowing that this is going to happen, knowing that, you know, uh, every Corvette in the universe is going to go like that. (laughs) Knowing that that's going to happen. There's one really, really important question. And, and, And Peter asked this question. The next verse, verse 11, he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be? What kind of people should we be? It's very interesting, the word kind there, or if you have a King James Bible, it says, what manner of people should we be? 
That word actually means exotic. It says, how exotic should we be? Like, how much of a hybrid should we be? Because we've got the word of God, and we've got the salvation, and we've got the spirit of God, and we know what's coming, and we have the truth, and we have certainty. What kind of people should we be? Exotic. Unique. You know, uh, foreign, if you will. Uh, What kind of people should we be? It's a very uh, interesting question to ask. What kind of people ought we to be? Uh, I've tried to train myself whenever I read the Bible to ask the question, so what? Every time I read the Bible, I say, wow, God is speaking to me. And so whatever I read, I ask the question, now, so what? What should my response be? To, why is God telling me this? What, what should I do? How should I respond? How should I think you know, differently now? Or what, what should I do as a result of God telling me this? Now that I know that the whole thing is going up in smoke, so what? How does that affect my life today? What difference does that make in my priorities and the way I think and the things that I feel passionate about and, and so on and so forth? And, uh, you know, that's a, a fascinating question. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is a, a great uh, passage for this. I always thought about this passage. Um, we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what's unseen, because what is seen is temporary, but what's unseen is eternal. So if you were to take a piece of paper, right, put a line down the middle, put, you know, temporary, eternal, and analyze your week and say, how much of my week did I give to what's temporary, and how much of my life am I giving to what's eternal and what's going to last? It's a sobering kind of experience. Because so much of our life can be caught up in what's temporal. And everything that's temporal is going to just be burned up. What kind of person should I be? Exotic. Different. Christ-like. I shouldn't be like the run of the world. We Christians shouldn't be trying to be like the world. We should be trying to be different. We should try to be like Jesus. And by the way, when Jesus was different, he was different in a way that attracted people. It wasn't odd. Odd repels people. Some Christians are odd. It's annoying. When you're around an odd Christian, isn't it annoying? You're like, this person is working against the cause here. <laughs> Jesus was different, but he wasn't odd. Jesus attracted people wherever he went. Right? He had huge crowds because he spoke with certainty. He knew what he believed. You know, he had compassion. He had love. He had forgiveness, he had generosity. I mean, he was different, but he wasn't odd. And he attracted people. And I think that's who we are becoming like. And so uh, Peter says in this verse 11, uh, you know, that we should be looking for this. He says, uh, since everything's going to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people you should be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to. One thing about Christians that ought to make them exotic or different is they are looking forward to something. They don't just look backwards. They're looking forward. They don't feel like life is winding down. They feel like life is winding up to the best part. And so we have this forward look. Peter says we're looking forward to that day, eagerly awaiting, you know, looking for that day. It's our day of vindication. It'll be a day when uh, the world will understand, oh, wow, you guys were right. Oh, wow, my goodness, the salvation that God was offering in Christ was the real thing. 
Oh my goodness, there is a God behind history. How could I have missed that? Why didn't I listen to you? It will be the day of vindication. It will be our day. Uh, I think when Christians neglect to embrace the prophetic portions of Scripture and they stay in the dark about the future, you know what happens? They get cold hearts. Christians who ignore the scriptures that are prophetic that tell us about the future, and I've talked to these people, they really annoy me. They, when you talk about prophetic things and you ask them, well, what do you think? They say, I- I'm just going to wait and see what happens. I hate that because you know what that says? I don't trust you, God. I don't really trust your word, God. I don't believe a thing you're telling me. I'm going to wait and see because for me, seeing is believing. That's the product of our scientific age. A lot of kids grew up in school being taught that. Well, if you can't see it, it doesn't exist. It's not real. It's a lie. See? And, and so when a Christian says, well, I'm just going to wait and see, I say, you are a worldly person. You don't trust God. You don't believe the Bible. This is really annoying. How can you call yourself a Christian and take a third of the Bible and just throw it out and pretend it doesn't exist? Why do you think God is telling us these things? So that we can be prepared. You know, it's very untrusting and worldly, and it leads to an unfaithful life. It's just the opposite of living with a sense of hope and a sense of expectation and looking forward to the future. It's purifying when you know you're going to meet Christ, right? It changes you. You, you. you have this sense of anticipation. And so when we live believing God, it changes our whole manner of being. What manner of person should I be? Well, we should be exotic. We should be different. We should be like Christ. We're not striving to be like the world. We're striving to be different. We're striving to be like Christ. And uh, again, not odd, different. And if you think about it, the way Jesus lived, he absorbed everybody else's bad and he deflected all the praise that came his way to his father. Jesus came into the world to be a savior. And we're not saviors, but when we are willing to forgive and extend his forgiveness to other people, and when we are willing to live by grace, undeserved favor that people need. Uh, I I think that relationships with people are all about debt. (laughs) You know, if you feel guilty, it's because you owe me. Right? If you feel anger, it's because... I owe you. You're mad at me, I owe you something. You feel I've offended you some which way. It's all about debt. Um, if, you're, uh, if you're jealous of somebody else, you sort of feel God owes you. It's another debt, you know? Um, it's, it's all about debt. And our relationship with God is about debt. We're sinners and we've offended God. There's only two ways you can deal with debt. Other people owe you, you owe other people. There's only two ways you can deal with that. Number one is the other person can earn it back. Number two is you can forgive the debt. Those are the only two ways you can get what's between people out of the way. You know? You don't have to come see me for counseling. I'm giving you everything that I got right here. (laughs) Right? It's always about debt. Somebody owes somebody something. And there's only two things you can do. You can either forgive, and that's what God's done for us, and that's what God expects us to do out in the world, or you can hold the other person responsible until they pay up which they can't do. And so you have broken relationships. It's always about debt. And and so, I don't know why we talked about that, but look what Peter says, verse 11. Since everything is going to be destroyed this way, what kind of people will you be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you're looking forward. 
Now, holy just means being set apart. Holy doesn't mean perfect. Holy means dedicated. Like you could have a holy pot and pan in the temple. It's set apart to be used for God's purposes. That's what it means. Holy means set apart. Unique, exotic, dedicated to a purpose. What kind of people should we be? We should be unique. We should be dedicated to a purpose. There's a reason for us to be here at this point in time. And so Peter says we should be holy and we should be godly. Like I was saying, our, our, our purpose in life is to become increasingly like Christ. Our original purpose when we were created in God's likeness and in God's image was to reflect the character of God into the world. And when sin came, you lost that privilege because you got all messed up yourself. When you get redeemed and Jesus comes into your life and the spirit of God gets back in you, we reclaim that purpose of reflecting the character of God into the world that he made. That's our purpose. That's the meaning of life that God intended that gets restored when we're saved, when we come to Christ. Uh, it, it's what I like to call a God-first life. Uh, there's a passage of scripture, that, again, in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 5. And uh, this, I don't know, this touches a little close to home this week for me, but uh, we know that if our earthly tent that we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we're clothed, we won't be found naked. For while we're in this tent, we groan and we're burdened, because we don't wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who made us for this very purpose, and has given us his spirit as a deposit guaranteeing that that's what's going to happen in the future. And therefore, we are always confident, and we know that as long as we're at home in this body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That was my dad. When I went down to see my dad this past week, my dad said, you know, I've had a great life. I don't have regrets. I'm at peace with God. I want to die. Why won't these people leave me alone? You know, the nursing home industry in Florida is quite a business. I got to tell you. You know, this, well, that's not my point here. <laughs> but look at this. Isn't this great? I would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. I am looking, I am so confident that to die is gain, like the Bible says, that I would prefer to go and be with the Lord. What a great gift it is to live like that, to have that sense of expectation that Peter says. You know, we're looking forward to this. Um, and, and so uh, Paul says, you know, uh, even though I prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord, uh, so I make it my goal to please him, whether I'm at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each person may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. How we live matters. So Peter says, what kind of people should we be? We should be holy and godly, living with this sense of expectation. And then finally, very quickly, I would just say to you in the next verse, verse 12, as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What does that mean? That you and I can somehow affect how fast the Lord will come back? That we can speed its coming. And uh, I want to suggest to you real quick that there are two extremes that uh, Christians fall into. One extreme is to think that we are so locked into God's sovereign plan 
and that God has every detail of everybody's life all dictated, and we're all like puppets, and God is just pulling our strings, and what we do or don't do doesn't matter one whit. That's one extreme that Christians fall into. You know, God is just determining everything, and what I do doesn't make any difference at all. The other extreme, on the other end, is to think that God can't do anything without me, and that somehow I'm indispensable, which is another extreme. The truth is found in the tension that that creates. What I do matters, but God is still sovereign. Now, I don't know how that all works out. It's messy, but it's the truth. And so Peter says, he says, you ought to live holy, godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. How can you speed its coming? I want to suggest two ways. Number one, pray. When Jesus taught us to pray, he said, when you pray, pray for thy kingdom to come. Pray for the kingdom to come because prayers make a difference. If you go to Revelation chapter 5 in that uh, great passage where God is sitting on the throne, he's got the title deed to the universe, the scroll in his right hand, and nobody can open it. It's got the seven seals on it and everything, and the 24 elders are around the throne, and they're carrying these bowls, and in the bowls is uh, incense-like, and what is it? It's the prayers of the saints who are influencing the timing of the unrolling of the scroll. And this, 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 the prayers are gathered together there in heaven, having an impact, making a difference in the way events are unfolding here in the history of man. And the second thing that we can do is spread the gospel, spread the good news. In Matthew 24, again, Jesus you know, uh, tells us, you remember these words? I'm sure you do. He says, you know, I want the gospel to go out to all the world, to all the nations, as a testimony to all the nations. In Matthew 24, verse uh, 14, and then the end will come. Here's what he says. Um, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most people will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. How can you speed the coming of the Lord and the, and the climax of, of, of history and, and be a part of the, be a player in all of this? Well, God is calling to himself a people from every nation in the world. And you might ask yourself, am I a player in missions? I mean, do I really care that the Varbergs over in the Philippines And this school where they're winning people to Jesus left and right and starting these churches in kind of a Muslim island of the Philippines, does it really upset me enough to make a sacrifice? Am I a player in world missions? Because until the nation's here, that's kind of why the whole thing is still holding together. Am I a player in missions? And how serious am I about reaching the next person that God has put on my heart? Who are you praying for that comes to know Jesus? Who are you care about that they would experience the salvation that Jesus came into the world? Uh, how, how intentional are we about sharing our story and sharing our faith and, and so forth? Do we give substantially to missions? Do we pray for our missionaries? Do we, are, are we players? Peter says, listen, you can hasten the day of the Lord's coming when you pray and when you spread the good news of the gospel, God's word. And then finally he says, um, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and Father, I thank you so much for you telling us what's coming in the future. It's a warning for us. 
when we know that this is what's going to happen because it's coming from your mouth and you've never lied to us yet and every prophetic uh, sentence in the Bible has uh, you know, come true. Those that have already happened and, and those that are in the future will come true in a literal sense just as those things have come true in the past. And so this morning, I pray, Father, that we would take your warning seriously, that we would recalibrate our lives, that we would think, wow, if everything that we think of when we think about our world in this life is going to be destroyed by fire, and there is this opportunity instead to live, Father, this eternal life and uh, to be about the things that are important to you, not that we neglect our lives here or you know, become uh, sloppy or casual and, and all of that, but it's a chance for us to give ourselves in a new and a fresh way to those things that will matter for all of eternity. And especially I pray that we would be sensitive to your spirit putting on our hearts people who are far from you so that we can rise up and speak to them and love them and extend forgiveness and grace and truth and certainty in a world uh, that's full of uncertainty. May we just keep becoming more and more like Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.